Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. I'm William Lester, Professor of Chemistry and Chair of the Hitchcock Professorship Committee. We're pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present Dr. J. Craig Pinter as part of the Charles N. and Martha Hitchcock Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we're obligated to tell you how the endowment came to UC Berkeley. Dr. Charles Hitchcock, a physician for the Army, came to San Francisco during the Gold Rush, where he opened a private practice that thrived. In 1885, Dr. Hitchcock established a professorship here at Berkeley as an expression of his long-held interest in education. His daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish a professorship at UC Berkeley, making it possible for us to present a series of lectures. The Hitchcock Fund has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. Thank you, Lily and Charles Hitchcock. And now a few words about Dr. J. Craig Venter. As a genetic scientist, Dr. Venter's achievements are unparalleled. He pioneered the use of the automated gene sequencer and in 1990 developed a new strategy for gene discovery and tagging that revolutionized the biological sciences. His vision, determination, and competitive spirit greatly accelerated the mapping of the human genome. The development is playing a critical role in deciphering the genetic basis of disease and will surely have dramatic impact on the future directions of medicine. Dr. Vinter received his PhD in physiology and pharmacology in 1975 from the University of California, San Diego. He has published over 160 research articles and is among the most cited scientists in biology and medicine today. He has received numerous awards, including the Beckman Award and the Chiron Corporation Biotechnology Award, both in 1999. Dr. Venter is currently chairman of the board for the Institute for Genomic Research. Please join me in welcoming Dr. J. Craig Venter. much for the uh, kind introduction. I'm indeed honored to be the Hitchcock uh, professor, a lecturer for today and tomorrow. I've broken uh, my topics into uh, two halves, uh, historically, to go through what led up to sequencing the human genome. And today I'm going to take you through uh, the development of the EST method through the first genome sequencing how the mathematics led to uh, expanding what we could do in sequencing, and some of the principles we've learned from the genomes we sequenced. Tomorrow, I think at the same time, I'll cover the Drosophila genome, the mouse genome, and the human genome. Now, my career started... I aimed at the wrong direction. Uh, my career started in the early 1970s at UC San Diego, where I was interested in 
how adrenaline worked on the heart and the brain. It took 10 years to actually finally get enough protein to sequence one of the first brain neurotransmitter receptors. It was a long 10-year period trying to get uh, something that was on the order of one millionth of the cellular protein isolated, finally getting enough protein where the uh, mid-1980s were able to actually clone a receptor. It took over a year to sequence the roughly 1,200 base pairs of this beta-adrenergic receptor gene using the old-fashioned methods of uh, electrophoresis and autoradiography. Around that same time, there were two key events that had a big impact on how I went forward. One was the discussion of the Genome Project, which was just beginning then of the notion that someday it might be possible to sequence all the genes in the human genome. And the second was a paper that was published in Nature in 1986 by Lee Hood and colleagues describing a new method for sequencing DNA where they attached four different fluorescent dyes to the DNA, activated those dyes with a laser, allowing the base pairs to be read out sequentially into a computer. My lab at NIH actually became the first test site for this new sequencing machine in early 1987. And it was actually a big deal when this paper was published in PNAS with the first two genes that were sequenced with this method. But it was hardly something that was going to lead in any obvious way to sequencing the human genome. We had to still read, even out of the computer, all the base pairs uh, manually, uh, and the throughput was extremely slow. But it rapidly allowed us to ramp up. It was actually working from a series of cDNA libraries and the notion of having to sequence roughly a thousand clones to get the sequence of a 30 kb uh, clone called, uh, at the time they were called Cosmid clones. That I got the notion of if we just randomly selected a thousand cDNAs from a library and sequenced those, it might really speed up a gene discovery. This method actually worked better than uh, anybody imagined. It was published in early 1991 uh, in Science. We called the method the Express Sequence Tag Method. Uh, it was quite controversial at the time because the same people that got upset later when I started sequencing the genome were sure that this rapid method for discovering human genes would lead to a reduction in the genome uh, budget. a constant theme in my career, apparently. Shortly after the initial paper, we scaled up a little bit more and published a second paper in Nature that actually more than doubled the number of known genes that had sequence attached to them. This method, it seemed, had the possibility of really moving forward gene discovery uh, quite dramatically. But with both these studies, uh, NIH created a huge controversy when the government decided to file a patent on all the genes that my lab uh, was discovering. As a result of wanting to expand what we were doing but not being able to do that within the government, in 1992 I left to form the Institute for Genomic Research. It's a not-for-profit research institute that was originally funded with a $70 million grant 
from a new company that I started, Human Genome Sciences. Uh, the notion was by having a research institute, uh, we could do the basic science research without being encumbered uh, by a company. We started the Human Gene Anatomy Project. Uh, people know that this has now expanded into the Cancer Gene Anatomy Project, where we made cDNA libraries from most major uh, organs and tissues and characterized hundreds of thousands of ESTs that actually got published in 1995 in the first ever special edition of Nature, uh, the Genome Directory. With this, we're able to put names on roughly 10,000 human genes, but most of the ESTs did not match anything that we recognized. The challenges and the things that actually moved us forward were some mathematical developments, not new techniques in molecular biology or biochemistry. The best algorithms we had could only deal with roughly 1,000 sequences uh, in the late 1980s. We, with the work we were doing at Tiger, had hundreds of thousands of EST sequences. The challenge was how could we put these together to, in fact, find out how many genes they represented. So we hired a team of uh, computer scientists and mathematicians. The lead scientist was Granger Sutton, a computer scientist and mathematician who wrote what is now known as the Tiger Assembler that allowed us to assemble these hundreds of thousands of sequences. Some of the early discoveries that came out of using these, uh, in fact, were three new genes associated with non-polyposis colon cancer. Just from the random sequencing, we discovered three new mismatched DNA repair enzymes. We'd seen that Bert Vogelstein's lab had actually already characterized uh, a fourth DNA repair enzyme associated with colon cancer, and in a collaboration with him, he rapidly showed that these three new genes uh, were actually a link to non-polyposis colon cancer. That's when ESTs really took off when they started making uh, discoveries uh, that moved forward the competitive nature of research. And, that, and still today, even with all the genomics efforts, ESTs are still the number one gene discovery uh, tool uh, for most the genomes, with the number and the latest uh, release of the EST database at NIH topping over 10 million uh, different sequences. I don't know if you can read this, but uh, some of the numbers are, there's over close to 4 million human ESTs, 2.5 million mouse, uh, over 300,000 from rat, and uh, about 250,000 from fruit fly. Uh, this page of species goes on for three or four pages, so there's a lot of diversity uh, that's been worked out with this technique. With this powerful tool, we were sitting around having discussions one day on how we might go back and deal with genomics with this new mathematical tool that we had developed. We were sitting around having discussions uh, with my team, including uh, the Nobel laureate Ham Smith, who actually suggested we sequence a microbial genome. The initial discussion was to take the DNA from E. coli, uh, Ham was going to make libraries to see if we could do this quite rapidly. E. coli at the time was in its ninth year of funding for the E. coli genome project. It actually took 12 years to sequence the E. coli genome. So we decided to try another species. We chose Haemophilus influenzae. 
Uh, it was Ham Smith's laboratory pet. He discovered the first restriction endonucleases from Haemophilus. Uh, it led to the tools that many of us use in molecular biology. It led to his sharing of the Nobel Prize. What we decided to do was to take the entire genome instead of making libraries. For example, with the E. coli genome, Fred Blattner's lab spent three years breaking the chromosome down into lambda clones that were then carefully aligned in a map. And after that mapping was done over a three-year period, those clones were then sequenced one at a time. That was the entire notion, in fact, how the Human Genome Project developed as well. It was deemed that these size pieces of DNA were far too large to handle in any sequencing project. And the only way to sequence a large genome or any genome was to break it down into a large number of smaller projects. We thought this new mathematical tool we have would allow us to, in fact, just randomly sequence small pieces from the entire chromosome and then assemble it back together uh, into the single chromosome. In 1994, Ham and I wrote a grant and submitted it to NIH saying we thought we had a dramatic new method that would speed up by maybe an order of magnitude genome sequencing. We weren't overly optimistic about getting funded, so we dipped into the Tiger Endowment to start sequencing the Haemophilus genome. And the chromosome went uh, fairly nicely together, but the concept these blue lines are lambda clones that to get linkage around the genome, tying up large assembled contigs, we sequence the ends of a random set of lambda clones, and if the sequence from one end of the lambda clone was in one assembly, and the other end was in another, you can see how it would link these up and provide order around the genome. Just as we were finishing closure of this chromosome, we got our critique back from NIH telling us what we were doing or proposing to do was impossible and wouldn't ever possibly work. Uh, I called Francis Collins and said the data was showing that it was going to work and it worked extremely well. Uh, but he was absolutely adamant uh, that it couldn't possibly work because their reviewers had uh, looked at it. A short while later, uh, we published this paper in Science, which ended up being the first genome for a free-living uh, organism. When we set out to do this, we did not set out to sequence the first genome. We set out to try this new method uh, to explore uh, how we might approach genomics. There's so many different stories with each of the genomes that we've done that I'm just gonna try and touch on some of the highlights that have come out of these. In that same issue of science, uh, Ham uh, put together a paper on a series of sequences that were found around the genome. In fact, approximately there was one of these sequences, uh, 29 base pair consensus sequence, every KB throughout the genome. It turns out these are unique sites recognized by receptors on the surface of Haemophilus. That everybody in this room has Haemophilus in their airways, unless you're on massive doses of antibiotics, which if you are, I recommend you not be in this room. Um, that as Haemophilus dies in our lungs and the DNA gets released, other bacteria using these receptor sites in the DNA take up that DNA back into the bacteria and use it to retransform or update the genetic code in the living bacteria. So 
this is how one of the two mechanisms that I'll show you on how Haemophilus is constantly evolving in real time, constantly updating its genetic code by just grabbing the DNA from the environment, taking it up quite specifically. Think of the evolutionary events that took place where these sequences are conserved in the middle of every coding region of every gene. Not only did the coding region have to evolve in terms of the protein structure, but it had to do so maintaining these very important uh, sites. The other thing that we found with starting with Haemophilus and now with uh, almost every pathogen that's been sequenced is we found that evolution is not a series of random errors. We found pre-programmed events in every genome that cause that genome to change over time. In the case of Haemophilus, there was a series of tetrameric repeats in front of essentially every gene associated with a cell surface antigen or the lipopolysaccharide biosynthesis pathways. It turns out what happens, it's a slip strand miscarrying mechanism with these tetrameric repeats every 10,000 or so replications. The DNA polymerase slips, changes the reading frame, and essentially knocks out that gene downstream. The reason, one of the key reasons that we all have this pathogen in our airways is because it's constantly through this mechanism changing in real time its cell surface antigens changing and fooling our immune systems to thinking that it's a new organism where we have to mount a new antibody attack. By the time we develop new antibodies, it's again changed its cell surface antigens. So this is a key mechanism that now we're finding uh, in every genome. There's variations on this theme, but it's clear to us that evolution is not just a random process, that there is events and specific sequences uh, that help to drive it. Homophilus genome was published in mid-1995, and with the whole genome shotgun method, uh, genomics really took off. In fact, one of the good things about our funding situation is that once a new idea is established, funding comes pouring forth for it. It's just very difficult to get funding for the new idea in the first place. But as soon as we published the Homophilus genome, people became convinced uh, and funding for massive uh, genome sequencing uh, took place. Most of these genomes were sequenced by the whole genome uh, shotgun method. The second genome that we did also in 1995, uh, to me is one of the most interesting ones. It's the smallest genome, uh, mycoplasma genitalium. This was characterized by Clyde Hutchinson, and he thought it might have the smallest genome of any free-living organism. There's another couple of views of mycoplasma uh, that when we published the genome, uh, this Farsight cartoon came out. I don't know if you can read it. It says, hey, I've got news for you, sweetheart. I am the lowest form of life on Earth. <laughs> The genome was sequenced very rapidly by a team headed by Claire Frazier at Tiger. It turns out that it has less than 500 genes. But if you maintain this picture in your mind tomorrow, we're looking at the human genome. Basically, almost, I think, 96% of the base pairs in this organism are used for a coding region of a gene. There's very little wasted space. 
After we published the mycoplasma genitalium genome, a group in Germany sequenced the pneumonia genome. And it turns out that the pneumonia genome has all the genes contained in the mycoplasma genitalium genome, plus 200 additional genes. Both these organisms derive from a gram-positive organism, such as B. subtilis. And a key part of evolution that a lot of people ignore is many pathogens in particular evolve by throwing out genetic material, not by adding new genetic material. We thought having these two different sequence genomes would allow us to, in fact, test whether those 200 extra genes in pneumoniae were, in fact, required for life. You would assume that they wouldn't be. And we also wanted to get down to find what the minimal gene set or what a minimal gene set is that could describe a living organism. This was a very naive project when it started. Uh, but it evolved uh, quite nicely. We had to develop a series of new techniques because there's no genetic systems uh, for the mycoplasmas. So Clyde Hutchinson, who was on sabbatical at Tiger for the time, developed this transposon mutagenesis technique being applied to whole genomes, where we basically just electroporate in um, different transposons. We allow the cells to recover uh, and then isolate different uh, uh, sets of bacteria with the assumption that they would only live uh, if the transposons had not inserted in an essential gene. Uh, doing this over uh, thousands of transposons events, in fact, the other key is by being able to prime off the transposon for sequencing we can find the exact site in the genome the transposon inserted in uh, down to the base pair. This is a map that we published a few years ago in science. This is based on the pneumonia genome. In every place you can see one of these red dots is where a transposon inserted in the genome. Some genes were very hot and had uh, a substantial number of transposon insertions. A lot of essential genes uh, had none because, remember, we recover these from living cells, uh, presumably with these genes of transposons inserted in them, if they're genes essential for life, uh, the cells would have died. Well, we confirmed the initial assumption we could knock out most of the 200 genes that were in pneumonia without killing the cells. But I think one of the most important things we discovered with this is we could not define a set of genes responsible for life uh, without having the exact context. So environmentalists, environmentalists love this. You know, molecular biologists proved the environment was important. Uh, let me give you an example. The mycoplasmas will grow on both glucose and fructose. If you have both glucose and fructose in the media and you have a transposon insertion in the glucose transporter, the cells still live and it looks as though uh, that transporter is not essential for life. But if you only have glucose in the media, not fructose, and you knock out the glucose transporter, the cell dies. So we can only define a set of genes for life in a very specific context. Ultimately, it would be nice to define a complete chemical environment and a complete gene environment where we could do these experiments. 
But the mycoplasmas require a very rich uh, chemical media uh, for growing. One of the other findings was that we got down to roughly 300 genes doing counting these knockouts one at a time. There's a big question about all the unknown genes we're finding in these genomes. But I think one of the most surprising things to most people was that of the 170 genes of unknown function, 103 of those are essential for life. You knock out one of those 103 genes, the cell dies. So a lot of people argued that these unknown genes were of little biological significance. They couldn't be important because we didn't know about them. Um, and people took those arguments very seriously. Now we know that this huge number of unknown genes, we've now put over 100,000 new unknown microbial genes in the public databases that many which are absolutely essential for life are those cells and we have no idea whatsoever what functions they uh, perform. This is a system where we're taking forward to try and see if we can use this information to go back and make a synthetic chromosome with just the genes that seem to be essential for life. Uh, and those are going to be long, ongoing experiments. When we published the homophilus genome and the mycoplasma genome, a lot of scientists compared the two sets of genes and said the gene pool in the microbial world is much smaller than anybody imagined because homophilus, which is a gram-negative bacteria, had a lot of genes in common with mycoplasma genitalia. Turns out it had a lot in common because the gene set that the mycoplasma got down to was by throwing out most of the genes and would make a gram-positive organism look unique. We initially thought some of this. Fortunately, we were smart enough not to publish our thoughts because as soon as we started the third genome project, that from an archaea, Methanococcus gymnasii, it totally changed uh, everybody's thinking quite dramatically. This is the submersible Alvin out of Woods Hole that went a mile and a half deep in the Pacific uh, off of Mexico to this hypothermal vent. The water temperature is about 2 degrees centigrade. The temperature in the center of this plume is about 400 degrees centigrade. Uh, the Alvin broke off a piece of this chimney right here and took it back uh, to Woods Hole where this organism was cultured out of that uh, piece of chimney. Methanococcus gymnasii after the late Holger Ganesh, uh, the initial expedition leader. This is a fascinating organism. It's the first autotroph to have its genome determined. <clears throat> this organism just requires carbon dioxide and uses hydrogen as its energy source and uses that the CO2 as its source of carbon. At our body temperatures, it's frozen solid. It cannot function. It comes to life about 60 degrees centigrade. Its temperature optimum for growth is 85 degrees centigrade, but it's totally happy in boiling water conditions. As far as I know, we can't do that very well. Uh, it's also uh, quite uh, mobile, uh, as you can see uh, from its swimming apparatuses. When we characterize the genome, in fact, we only found about 38% of the genes could be defined as similar to anything that had been seen before. And the other thing that was pretty fascinating was a substantial portion of the genes 
those involved in transcription, translation, and replication more resemble genes from eukaryotes than other prokaryotes. This data was used to, uh, was claimed by many to prove, in fact, that the archaea were, in fact, the third branch of life. And this was published in Science in 1996. We thought that the high number of unknown genes with the early genome projects was just simply a phenomenon the databases were so empty that of course we couldn't find a lot of things that matched. But now on average out of all the genomes and if you pick a new bacterial species and sequence it today, on the order of 50% of the genes are of an unknown function. As we get more and more genomes done, uh, this number is probably hard to read, it's about 26% of those of this set are actually uh, species-specific. The species-specific set is going down as we add more and more repertoire uh, to the databases. Uh, and I think the species-specific set of genes uh, is a fallacy of the limitations of the databases. The most interesting organism, certainly my favorite one, is Dinococcus radiodurans. This was discovered in the 1950s when the government attempted to irradiate meat for long-term storage without refrigeration. But even the military thought it was unappetizing when red pigmented bacteria kept growing out of the irradiated meat. Uh, it was characterized and found to be a very high GC content organism, a gram-positive organism that can take ex extremely high uh, radiation doses Um, this one can go up to 3 million rounds of radiation uh, and not kill the bacteria. Basically, its chromosomes get blown apart with a couple of hundred double-stranded breaks. But over a 12 to 24-hour period, it stitches its chromosomes back together exactly as they were, and it starts replicating again. This is a glass beaker after roughly a half million rounds of radiation. It started to burn and uh, melt and crack. The bacteria in the bottom of the beaker was just singing happily away, saying, please give me more. Um, we cannot stand up to those doses of radiation very well. This is just looking over a 24-hour uh, period where the chromosomes got stitched back together. It was initially thought that there was just one chromosome but as with every genome, when the genome gets sequenced with the whole genome shotgun method, there's always uh, surprises. There was actually uh, four genetic elements, a large uh, chromosome, uh, roughly a half million base pair chromosome, and two uh, very large uh, plasmids. Uh, this is the maps of them, and, and uh, they're all circular um, DNA. But what we're finding more and more is that the evolution of one of the chromosomes uh, clearly has one path, but the plasmids, or in this case the uh, second chromosome, looks like it came from an entirely different species and has a different evolutionary history. Don't get too excited when you hear announcements from NASA that they isolated uh, Deinococcus in outer space. Uh, Francis Crick promoted the notion of panspermia as the source of, uh, of life on this planet, but it was dismissed largely because there were no organisms that could withstand those conditions. Dinococcus can live totally in a desiccated environment in a vacuum, 
It can take huge doses of ionizing radiation. You put it in an aqueous environment, it stitches its chromosomes back together again and will start replicating. But every time a space shuttle goes up, every time they flush the commode on the space station, billions of copies of this and other microorganisms get launched into outer space. So if it was not there before, it's clearly there now. <laughs> NASA left a uh, camera on the moon for two years, and when they picked it up and brought it back, four different microorganisms were isolated out of that camera. Uh, they thought they were in the camera to begin with, and they didn't come from the moon. But it shows that, in fact, microbial life can exist in the rigors of outer space. There's another organism that's quite interesting, Shewanella, which metabolizes heavy metals. In fact, can even metabolize uranium. So the Department of Energy got very excited and wanted to know if people would do engineering on Dinococcus, this uh, radiation-resistant organism, and put in the metabolic pathways from Shewanella so you'd have a radiation-resistant organism that could metabolize uranium. But it hasn't happened yet. Another very interesting organism is Thermatoga maritima, which was isolated from a uh, very hot pool in, in Italy. Uh, this is an organism that uh, metabolizes uh, plant debris at high temperatures. The Thermatogas by 16S RNA were placed close to the origin of the bacterial branch of the 16S RNA tree. So it was thought by sequencing dermatogas and aquafex, we might find things down close to the source. In fact, what happened was we showed, uh, amongst other things, that this tree structure probably does not make uh, any sense at all. Um, in fact, one of the key findings with this is that we found uh, several blocks of genes that looked like they came into Thermatoga by lateral gene transfer. We um, blow up this part. So here's the other species uh, that looks like the best matches were two, all in the archaea. And you can see it was not just one or two genes, but entire sets of genes that look like they came in as cassettes. So here's a bacteria that had a large number of cassettes that had a different GC content at genes in the same order that we found in the archaea uh, that people now argue that this data from Thermatoga is the best evidence for lateral gene transfer between major branches. In fact, there's now lots of other examples using this type of data for horizontal uh, transfer. Part of what was happening in the evolutionary field was because people could sequence 16S RNA, they were basing evolutionary trees just on single gene information. As soon as we could look at entire genomes, the entire set of information, it became clear that this single gene data does not give you a species evolution, both because gene duplication events, horizontal transfer, and very different mutation rates. So the tree of life concept is probably not a reasonable one because if you can have transfer horizontally, not just mother-daughter transmission of genetic information, uh, then a tree structure does not make sense for describing evolution. 
And here's a cartoon uh, that Russ uh, Ford Doolittle put forward uh, that uh, maybe is more uh, typical of what a tree of life would look like, and it looks uh, fairly complicated with all the uh, horizontal being transferred. A lot of groups went overboard in terms of any time they found similarity between a gene in one species and another, uh, to call it horizontal gene transfer. Uh, the public effort did this on the human uh, genome analysis, and now that data has been uh, retracted. Infectious agents, both bacteria and parasites, are the second leading cause of death in the world. So we made a major effort in terms of characterizing pathogens with the early work going on at Tiger. Microbiology groups are certainly around the U.S., but I think uh, in other countries as well, uh, shut down uh, to a great extent after 1967 when the U.S. Surgeon General basically stated we've won the war against uh, microbial disease and we should get on and fund other areas of science and most of the dollars uh, went somewhere else than microbial research. As a result, we now have massive occurrence of drug-resistant microbes, antibiotic-resistant microbes, uh, and there's more and more examples of these every day that I think having the genomes can certainly help with that process. Here's a partial list of some of the pathogens that have been uh, sequenced by the team at Tiger, and I'll give you a few examples of these. Tuberculosis is uh, thought to be uh, the leading infectious uh, cause of death in adults. Uh, there's on the order of three million deaths annually. Uh, it's a growing problem around the world. There's a new strain of tuberculosis that emerged uh, in Tennessee. Just one worker at a clothing factory, uh, this is called the Oshkosh strain, but I can't tell you the name of the clothing factory, um, <laughs> resulted very rapidly in 75% of his co-workers becoming skin test positive for tuberculosis. Uh, two of his family members rapidly got confirmed with tuberculosis, uh, and two of his co-workers did early on. 80% uh, of just minor social contacts became skin test positive. Uh, this is one of the most virulent forms of tuberculosis ever seen. So we decided it was really worthwhile uh, characterizing its genome. Another team was doing a laboratory strain uh, that was a standard for TB research. The tuberculosis genomes are very stable genomes. But what we found is there were several genes in the Oshkosh strain that looked like they were deleted in some of these other strains. And so it now provides clearly testable hypotheses of a finite number of experiments that can be done to in fact find which genes or which sets of genes are responsible for the virulence. There's now been using these polymorphic variations in the genome have uh, Tiger's team on tuberculosis has now typed a very large number of TB genomes and it's totally reclassified uh, how we look at tuberculosis. Malaria is the number one killer of uh, children. Uh, one to three million children die a year from malaria. 
And malaria is another uh, organism that has become uh, drug resistant. And there's been no new uh, treatments uh, in the last 60 years. Drug resistant malaria is spreading quite rapidly. And now it's thought that one of the biggest risks to the U.S. military going in some of these areas is going to be death due to malaria, uh, not from bullets uh, or, gun or bombs. At the time, most people thought the malaria genome would not be sequenceable because it has 82% A's and T's. And when you have these long strings of A's and T's, the sequencing chemistry does not work very effectively. We proposed at the start of this just to do a whole genome shotgun of this, but the other problem is even large clones from the malaria genome are not clonable, they're not stable in E. coli. So we set out to do a test project on chromosome 2, which we could isolate from a gel. In a very short period of time, it became clear that the whole genome shotgun method worked very effectively with this. And then several years ago, we published the first malaria uh, chromosome, one of the first eukaryotic chromosomes, and found a different mechanism for antigenic variation, uh, whereby alternate splicing and using different sets of genes and the telomeres of the chromosomes, malaria could constantly change its antigens on the surface. This is the Anopheles mosquito uh, taking a blood meal and injecting the malaria parasite in an individual and working with uh, the Allergy and Infectious Disease Institute, we decided that it would be beneficial not only to have the malaria genome, but also the mosquito genome, as well as that of human. And so just a short while ago, uh, the Anopheles Genome Project had started, uh, and because of all the advances uh, that came from sequencing Drosophila in human, the 290 million base pair project in mind Hermopolis was only 1.9 million base pairs uh, got done in just a few months uh, and is dependent uh, 12x coverage is now being put together uh, and this genome uh, will be published uh, shortly. So it's thought that now having the malaria genome, there are new vaccines and clinical trials based on new discoveries from the malaria genome sequence that having the Anopheles genome and looking at variations of the human genome where people have more or less susceptibility to disease, that there's going to be a large number of new ways to intervene uh, with this killer. These are spirochetes. We want to look at the spirochete uh, population, so we looked at uh, some historically important ones, uh, the syphilis genome and the Borrelia burgdorferi genome. Borrelia was one of the smallest genomes we sequenced. Uh, the main chromosome was only 900,000 base pairs and a large number of plasmids adding up to around 500,000 base pairs. But it caused us to totally perfect and change the algorithm because of the large number of repeats uh, in this genome. Some of these plasmids being almost identical to each other, but the mathematics advanced along with genomics and this went together quite well. Uh, this was the first genome from an insect host, and there was an interesting finding as we tried to characterize the metabolism of the Borrelia genome. It was known when you try to grow these spirochetes in culture, they have an extremely high requirement for N-acetylglucosamine. We were trying to look at the metabolic pathways and understand why that might be the case. 
Then all of a sudden we realized that the entire exoskeleton of the pig was a polymer of an acetylglucosamine. So in fact, uh, this gets broken down into dimers. We found a specific transporter that transports that into the cell. And so this is how genomics can generate new hypotheses that can be tested. In theory, if we can block the uptake of the dimers of N-acetylglucosamine, we might be able to disrupt the entire life cycle of this disease-causing spirochete. And there's a group, I think, at Yale that's trying to make an inhibitor to this to see if, in fact, that will change uh, the uh, life cycle. The cholera genome, when we first set out to sequence this, the people in the 16S RNA community said it was stupid to sequence the cholera genome because the 16S RNA said it looked just like E. coli. Uh, we decided to go ahead anyway. People thought it just was a single chromosome. When we sequenced it, we found there were actually two chromosomes, uh, one around 2.9 million base pairs and one around a million. The one that was 2.9 million base pairs looked very similar to E. coli. But all the key attributes to cholera were on the 1 million base pair chromosome that looked like it, again, had a totally different evolutionary history. That chromosome being picked up sometime along the way, changing the biology of this organism. Neisseria meningitis is closely related to Haemophilus, and it's the second major cause of meningitis. This organism was sequenced with a grant from Chiron because they wanted to try and develop a new vaccine against meningitis. And just to show you how rapidly things can change, while we sequenced the genome, we identified new cell surface antigens not subject to these phase variation mechanisms that the Chiron team put into their vaccine development. And we published both papers simultaneously less than a year from starting. And now there's candidates that have gone into clinical trials that look like stable cell surface antigens that can be used uh, uh, in certainly promising studies uh, for a new vaccine against meningitis. This is creating a whole new paradigm, both with malaria and the Nysseria meningitis project, as a new way to rapidly develop vaccines, which is obviously getting some interest with tiger sequencing of the anthrax genome, uh, the smallpox genome, et cetera. In addition, there's only three major pathways that are used currently for antibiotic development. Now we have this entire new repertoire and in each of these pathogens of new ways to intervene. Well, if you come back tomorrow, I'm going to tell you about how we scaled up these techniques, going first into Drosophila, uh, then the human genome and the mouse genome, uh, and then some of the implications of this work. Thank you very much. Do I have any theories on how an organism could pick up an entire new chromosome? I don't, uh, other than 
what's really been undercharacterized is the viral population. If you take a milliliter of seawater out here, uh, probably not from the bay, if you go out to the ocean where it's a little bit cleaner, you'll find a million bacteria per milliliter and 10 million viruses. Think about that the next time you're swallowing seawater. Uh, so it's very possible that those viruses play a role in transferring large blocks of DNA. We're actually looking for some of those because as we try to make synthetic chromosomes, we're looking for ways to transfect uh, other organisms with those. Electroporation works, but I don't know if that occurs uh, naturally or not. Um, so I don't know the mechanisms. Well, won't you join me in thanking Dr. Mary for a very interesting presentation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.